Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Mental Golf Show. As always, I'm your host, Josh Nichols. And on today's episode, we have a special guest. It is University of Texas head coach John Fields. Coach Fields uh, really needs no introduction, but in case you are unaware of his um, illustrious resume, he has uh, his team has won uh, a national championship in 2012. He has coached players like Jordan Spieth, Scotty Scheffler, uh, Jonathan Vegas, uh, Tim Heron, uh, Doug Gim. Uh, I, I'm not looking at the list right now because you'll hear a lot of the names as we go through the podcast. I just, off the top of my head, those stick out, of course. Um, but he has coached uh, some of the best players that are on the PGA Tour right now. So, yeah, listen up for him. Uh, he has a lot to say about goal setting, culture, um, how you can make your goals happen. He, uh, he has some other things to say about what to do on the course when things aren't going well. Um, just, just some, just uh, he's a treasure trove of information, um, and uh, you'll find that out very soon. So I hope you enjoy. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. If you could just start by maybe introducing yourself, kind of your history. Uh, I mean, anyone could go online and read it, which it's long, good, long, strong history. But maybe you could give us the the quick one or two minute. Okay. I'm John Fields. I'm the head men's golf coach at the University of Texas. I'm in my 25th year here at Texas. Started August 1st, 1997. Prior to that, I was the head men's golf coach at the University of New Mexico. Uh, started there December 1st, 1987. So I was there basically 10 years. And now nearly 25 years here. I'm in my 25th year. Uh, before that, uh, I was a golf professional in Southern Arizona, in Yuma. Uh, uh, I was at initially at Desert Hills Golf Course, uh, 1984 season. And then I transitioned to a place called Mesa del Sol Golf Course, uh, 85, 86, 87. And uh, I... Uh, Ended up there because in 1983, I, I actually in 1982, I think it was like September, October, probably October, November, actually, that I qualified for the European PGA Tour uh, and played the entirety of 1983 season, 27 tournaments in nine different countries. And that was, uh, my wife and I were together at that time. She was my caddy. Uh, we've been together ever since. We actually have, we're in our uh, 40, 41st year right now, actually 42nd year. But anyway, uh, played the entirety of the 1983 season in Europe. Uh, we spent more money than we made. And that's how I ended up becoming a golf professional in Southern Arizona. Had some contacts there. and. It was just intending to be there for a season. We ended up starting a family and and uh, decided that the PGA Tour, the European PGA Tour, wasn't for us. Um, prior to that, I played college golf at the University of New Mexico, which is in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Played there four years. Uh, 
And then prior to that, I was, uh, I grew up in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is near El Paso. That's where New Mexico State is. So I went north to go to college. That's where I met my wife. Uh, we've been married nearly 42 years now. And, and uh, that's kind of my history as a high school golfer, college golfer, golf professional or pro golfer, golf professional, and then college golf coach. Right. So, I mean, you've been a college golf coach most of all that time. So what, what made you want to be a college golf coach back in New Mexico? And then what made you want to do it at Texas and still continue doing it at Texas? Yeah, well, really, it was just the opportunity that presented itself. I was intending to be a head golf professional at some particular club at some point in time. I love golf and, and enjoyed being around it, love teaching golf, um, transitioned out of being a professional golfer into quickly into being a, a, a golf professional. Professional golfer makes money playing golf, golf professional lives the world and works the world of golf essentially. Uh, but I got my class A in the PGA of America in roughly 1987, early 1987. And so I was a class A member of the PGA and I was looking, I'd already spent one season, one season in Northern Arizona as a head golf professional. So I was looking to build my resume and become a head golf pro professional somewhere. Um, I was still a really good player at the time, good enough as a golf professional, not necessarily a professional golfer, but mm -hmm. uh, to be very credible with our members and that sort of thing. But my coach at New Mexico, Dwayne Knight, uh, left the University of New Mexico to be the head golf coach at UNLV. And so I checked into the opportunity and, and found my way uh, through some great contacts to get that job as the head golf coach at New Mexico. And, and, uh, it's been a nice fit. I've been doing it for nearly 35 years now. No kidding. So what keeps you to kind of jump to the present? What kind of keeps you going? Why do you, why are you still coaching? I mean, obviously you, you've got plenty of years left, but why do you still do it? Like what's your why for it? Well, yesterday I was 63 years old, but my why and why I do what I do is to, to help guys, uh, get where i didn't go and that is to the pga tour and to win on the pga tour uh, i enjoy doing that that that's not to say that every player that comes to texas ends up being a pga tour player but that is absolutely why we get up in the morning that's why we do what we do and i'm at a great university uh, and have been both both universities were really fine but university of texas Central Texas, uh, Austin, Texas is a place where you didn't have to really reinvent the wheel. Uh, our program here at Texas is 94 years old, going on 95 years old. There's been five golf coaches in its existence. Um, Harvey Phoenix's brother um, was the head coach initially for three or four years. Then Harvey Penick was the head coach, uh, essentially from uh, 1930 to 1961 or two. And then George Hannon uh, was the head coach from 62 to 
81 and then Jimmy Clayton from 81 to 97. And then I've been here since then, Mm. but this program's 95 years old. It has three national championships. I've been part of one in 2012 and we have 91 PGA tour victories and eight major championships is on the PGA tour. So it's really cool place to be. It's odd to think that when a program is 94 years old, that you would be in a constant build, but that is the truth. We, that's what we are. Hmm. First of all, happy birthday. If you said, you thank, said you. Yesterday. thank you. Thank that's, you. That's crazy. Uh, uh, so, so when you, when you say your why is to get players from where they are to where you weren't able to get to the BGA tour and not everyone is able to, but when you say that is kind of your ultimate purpose as a coach, what are you doing to do that? Like, what is your, what's your role in that, in getting the player to that? Well, number one, it starts with recruiting. I mean, you, you've got to go out and you got to find guys that you feel like have those type of goals and desires and have maybe some God-given ability and then also have the work ethic and have a lot of the right components. Parents would be one of those components uh, that have created opportunities for them to, to be the type of guy that we would really like to recruit here at Texas. So once we get them here at Texas, my job has been over the last 25 years to to build kind of a nest where they can blossom essentially. And, and what we've done there is we've, we, uh, when I first came here in 1997, we didn't have a golf course or a practice facility. That was our own. That took until 2003, but we got that built. And then we've been refining that ever since. And we have added a, a collegiate golf Academy in 2005 The golf course was built in 2003 and it was up and running in 2003. And uh, then the clubhouse was built in 2009. And we added, I'm going to say 2005, six, seven, we started making and refining the golf course, making updates and refining the golf course to be a championship golf course. And then we've continually uh, worked on our practice facility. We've, we've, uh, whether it's short game, uh, the driving range itself, the academy updates in that being technologically correct or up to date as of today. Uh, we added our speed lower 40, which is a six hole short course. So we've got 18 great holes, a six hole short course. We've got our own men's and women's side of our driving range along with an academy you can go online and see that if you go to texasports.com and see the facility but anyway it's it's a great place and you can go to twitter and, and see us but um that was number one you gotta you you, you you've got to be comfortable where you are you've got to feel like you've created an opportunity for guys to make a decision to come here because they think they're going to get better and if you think you're going to get better, there's a good chance that you might actually get better. And then we've designed our program to be competitively challenging on a daily basis. 
And we continue to refine that as well. And so that being said, the other things that I'm in charge of is, is creating an incredible schedule so that our players can compete against the best players on the best golf courses against the best teams and the best coaches. And if they, if they're doing that on a normal basis, then they're also competing against guys. If they matriculate out to the PGA tour that they're going to be playing with. So like, for instance, a Jordan Spieth and a Justin Thomas, they, they competed against each other as junior golfers, as collegiate golfers, and now as PGA tour members. And so they've known each other for a long, long time. And that doesn't mean that if you grew up in a different environment, you could come to Texas, but you're going to be playing against the best teams. Our, our schedule is always top one, two, three, four, or five in America on an annual basis. A lot of coaches don't like doing that because we have what's called the 50% rule in, in the NCAA. And that means you have to have a 50% 50 winning percentage with your schedule to advance to uh, the postseason. So that would be the NCAA regional NCAA championship. What that means is, is if let's say you have a 10 tournament schedule and there's 15 teams in each tournament. So that would be 150 teams over the semester or over the year. And if you did duck yourself out, then you would have 140 opportunities to either win or lose. And you've got to be above 50%. So you need to be at 71 wins or, and if you have more than uh, 70 losses, you can't qualify for conference championships so, or, or a regional championship in the NCAA postseason. And, and the reason that's important is because we want to be obviously in the postseason. We're here to, try to win national championships and, and regional championships and, and for that matter, conference championships. But if you don't have the opportunity because you didn't have that winning percentage, that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. But uh, for us, that means that, or, or for many teams, that means that they kind of pad their schedule. So in other words, they'll play two, three or four tournaments where they know they're going to get a lot of wins I don't do that. We've never done that. We always play the top tier, most difficult tournaments that we can find. And it's been a good equation because our players get a lot of feedback and information on a daily basis when they're out competing because they're playing against the best players, best teams, best coaches, best golf courses. Yeah. It's one of those you, you hope your guys can keep up. Otherwise we're not going to get into conference, but it's kind of chicken and egg. Like, do we put the good uh, schedule in place and then adapt to the schedule? Or, you know, what do we do first? Do we get our guys good or do we get our schedule good? But you're you're already, you guys are already good enough to be able to handle a tough schedule. So, Well, and then you can recruit to that as well. Because you, you if you take a player like a Jordan Spieth or a Dylan Fratelli or Kramer Hickok or Jonathan Vegas or... Um, I mean, Scotty Scheffler, Doug Gim, that a lot of the reason they came here was just exactly that. They knew they were going to play against the best on a normal basis. 
And so, you know, a lot of people think, well, really what you're recruiting to is the University of Texas, this great institution and Austin, Texas. But it's way, way more than that. You're you're recruiting absolutely um, has got to be identified where the player feels like they're going to get better or they have a path to where they really want to go. Yes, they're going to get a great education here at Texas. Yes, they're going to have a great facility. But the truth is, why would you come here? Well, because everything lines out. You know, and and basically Coach Fields is going to clear a path for me to get there, and then he's not going to get in my way. Which goes back to your why of bringing them from day one to hopefully the PGA Tour, and you're not going to you're not going to stop that from happening. You're going to give them every opportunity for that to happen. So, with that being said, this is the Mental Golf Show, so I want to know the kind of mental intangible components, not as much the like how do they work on their swing that kind of stuff or. But like, do you guys do anything specific to work on the mental game or is it kind of just a general culture? Like, is there anything specific exercises type things that you guys do for the mental game? Well, Ed Grant years ago uh, started with subconscious golf. He, he did a tape and my coach, Dwayne Knight, introduced that to us. Uh, I thought it was amazing. It was kind of really, this was in the 70s. And truth be known, it was, to my brain, it was how Jack Nicholas thought, really. Because up to that point, nobody had really gone down the path of sports psychology in the game of golf. Now, I would say that coaches like Harvey Penick, would embody uh, not only being a golf professional, but being a swing instructor, a golf mentor, and a sports psychologist. He didn't have the degree to do that, but that that was the old time golf professional. You have guys like that that still exist. There, there's like, for instance, Randy Smith in Dallas. Randy works with Scotty Scheffler today, but he worked with Harrison Frazier, brought Justin Leonard along, Hunter Mahan years ago as well. Soup to nuts. That guy is the real deal. Uh, he's He is among the finest golf people on the planet because he he really is the consummate golf professional. He's a head pro emeritus at his club. Uh, today, but at Royal Oaks in Dallas, because he no longer is in the golf shop, but he is this refined, older, uh, incredible golf instructor that embodies what I just told you, which is this guy has all the components, golf instructor, golf mentor, maybe even second dad to some of these guys. And then on top of everything else, he's a sports psychologist. So, um, but Ed Grant was the first and at least I think so. And, and, and I took a lot of that and kind of melded that into my brain. I was never physically good enough to be out on tour. And 
my, my mechanics weren't good enough to be out there and they didn't get refined as much as I probably should in, in college. But once, once you go down that path, that's a 50, 50 proposition. When you start changing golf swings and doing that sort of thing, I mean, you look at a guy like Ian Baker Finch, that was a great player, hit it a certain way, you know, went to, uh, XYZ instructor, I won't use his name, and you've never heard of the guy. Well, he's a great commentator, but he won the British Open and he won multiple times on the PGA Tour and he just fell off. Because when you go to changing that golf swing, it might not work. Tiger, on the other hand, has been able to go through massive changes that don't look that much different with his golf swing, but but they are. But again, you're surrounded by, here's another guy uh, which was um, Butch Harmon that is embodies that guy. He's he's not just a swing instructor. He's a friend. He's a mentor. He is a sports psychologist. He is all those things. There's there's not that many guys that exist anymore that are like that. They're more centered on golf swing. So now tour player might actually have a team with him. He's got his swing instructor. He's got his mental coach. He's got, you know, in Dustin Johnson's case, he might even have a, a chef. And then he's got his um, physical fitness coach. Then he's got his agent. And then he's got his business partner. People who take care of his accounting and all that stuff. So now, you know, rather than have Randy Smith, one guy, Butch Harmon, you got five guys that fill that role or five people that fill that role. And that's kind of a comfortable thing for players today. You got to be able to afford that, but they're making a heck of a lot more money today than they did 30 years ago or 40 years ago or 50 years ago. So they, a lot of these guys can afford that and, uh, and feel like it's, it's a really, really good investment for us. I have evolved. I mean, I've read everything that I could possibly read over, over the years. I've read from a coach's perspective, sports psychology, the inner game of golf, uh, subconscious golf. Uh, you know, you could read the book Think and Grow Rich and, and, uh, and, and be a better golfer because you read that book. Because it deals with the mind and it deals with acquiring success. And uh, golf is no different. You're, you're constantly trying to vision the type of player that you want to be. Let's hope. That's why we write down goals. That's why we kind of vision where we want to be. And if we're doing that on a constant basis, you know, they say that Gary Player sat in front of a mirror and did affirmations. And that was, I am the greatest golfer in the world. I am the greatest golfer in the world and did it hundreds of thousands of times until he truly believed that he was the greatest golfer in the world. A guy like Lee Trevino, he didn't do that. He grew up in Dallas, Texas, very poor, came to golf. Why does that guy end up being a PGA Tour player, a major champion that can beat Jack Nicklaus at any given time and did and had five major championships? How does that happen? Well, he went into the United States military. He went into the Marines. And, and those guys, in basic training, they 
tear you down and then they build you back up, but they build a warrior. They build somebody that has a vision that thinks ahead, that, that has discipline, that, that, that lives that. And that was the older golfers years ago. You don't have really any veterans on the PGA tour anymore. United States veterans. There are a few, um, there's a few Koreans that, that have mandatory service that they have to go through. And I'm sure that basic training is no easy deal. Uh, there are a few that have to do that. Um, but you just, it's not prevalent on the PGA tour anymore. My assistant golf coach, uh, John Paul a his dad was Jay a He won on the PGA tour seven times and he won the PGA championship and he was the Ryder cup captain. But if you go back, he was a freshman at Louisiana Lafayette years ago. World War II started. He joined the Marines, went to the Marines, was on Iwo Jima when they raised the flag, got wounded there, and ended up going back to LSU, helped his team win a national championship in golf, and then went out on the PGA Tour. But you got a guy that was battle-hardened, that was um trained by the marines and and had a different vision about who he wanted to be and how he ran his life that's why a guy like lee trevino why why in the world would the crease on his shirt and the crease on his pants make any difference to him on the pga tour or that his shoes were shined or or that he was presentable this guy was poor he grew up poor he grew up you know, gambling, but, and just found his way to golf and hit thousands and thousands of golf balls. But the reason all those things were important to him was because, because he was a Marine. And, and as a result, he embodies this person that essentially is a warrior playing professional golf. I mean, that, I do think that that exists. And they found their way in a different way. But when you think of a guy like Tiger or Brooks, Kepka, you don't want to get in those guys' way. I mean, they'll mow you down if, if you get in their way. And Kepka is one of the toughest guys out there, you know. And he presents that image. So do you do you see yourself as the as in a role to give your guys that environment without, you know, being boot camp. I mean, is that kind of how you see yourself? Or do you aspire as Coach Fields to be one of those guys that fills all those three or four or five different roles? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm always very guarded how I present things to guys. Um, I know that the mind works in pictures. I know that the mind, um, um. That, that, that you can have a particular vision of yourself. And if you truly believe it and you live it, um, that you can achieve it. Um, trying to think of a good example that, you know, just say you're on the golf course and you stand up on the first tee and say, you know, let's say the fairways down the, just a straight ahead fairway. You've got a little rough left and you've got out of bounds left and you've got water hazard on the right, all the way down fairway, par four, it's difficult hole. Well, 
If you say, man, don't hit it in the water. Well, your mind immediately pictures yourself hitting it in the water. Or you might overcorrect and hit it out of bounds. So if I'm standing with a player, I'm, I'm going to say, okay, let's make a great golf swing here. Give me a great finish, great rhythm, great balance. Let's hit it right down the middle. And let's hit it, you know, right to the edge of the end of that fairway at 300 yards and give ourselves a, an opportunity to hit a great shot for the second shot. But what I'm going to try to do is give them a great picture of what they want to do, not what they don't want to do. You know, if you focus on what you don't want to do, that's what you're going to do, most likely. <laughs> Whatever you focus on is what you're going to do, whether it's what you don't want or what you do want. That's exactly right. And and in my mind, the negative is much more powerful than the than the positive. There there are players in history that were seriously negative uh, and still had success. They found a way with who they are, but for the most part. And I, I'm not talking about going around the golf course, happy-go-lucky and yeah, this positive guy. My mind, when you're out on the golf course, you're inside the ropes. And it's no different than a fighter going inside the ropes in a ring. Uh, you better have trained to be in that ring. And you better have your hands up when you go in that ring. And that's no different than being on the golf course. I always tell my players that set of golf clubs you have is, yeah, it's 14 clubs, but really what it is is a set of shots. And Jackie Burke told me a long time ago, this is when I first got here, I thought I've got to go down to Houston. I've got to meet Jackie Burke, kind of the dean of golf and, and uh, still is. I mean, he's, I think he's 98 or 99 years old now. But I was lucky to sit with him and he quizzed me and he was difficult and tough. He was a United States Marine and he won the Masters. Um, but one of the things he told me, he says, Coach, you know what that 18 holes is out there? Uh, you know, I kind of fumbled around, but he said, that's an 18 hole test. That's an 18 question test. Bottom line is, are you, are you capable of answering the questions as they're going to come at you out there? You know, not just what the golf course is that day, you know, what the green speeds are, how tall the rough is, how tight the fairways are, out of bounds, water hazards, all those things. Those are all designed to test you. But what the weather's going to be like, what the wind's going to be like and the changes and all those different things. Um, I love it. I love it. And, and his equate. His equation was, you've got an 18-hole test. Are you prepared for that test? Did you do the things that allowed you to, to be prepared that day? Can you hit it down the fairway? Can you hit that wedge close? Can you convert when you have that putt? And all those things are about vision, in my opinion. I mean, you're going to, you know, everybody's, we're all human. So our physiology suggests that we're going to be a little bit different on a daily basis. Hands might not feel the same. Um, shoot, you might even wake up on the wrong side of the bed, but you still got to go out and compete. And uh, I, I, I just feel like everything that we do here is, is kind of a compilation of all the things that I've tried to learn over the years, listening to great coaches, 
reading as much as I could, uh, sitting down with the great players when I could. And, you know, I, I, some of these guys I think are just born to be great and then had the right circumstances to get them to where they are. So it's been a joy for me really to be around this. And I, I still have the burn and the energy to want to continue to do it. Um, I don't, it's not hard for me to get up in the morning. Maybe it, it, my wife would tell you I get up too early. Um, and, and I'm constantly thinking about it. Um, my, my counterpart here, Ryan Murphy, who's the women's coach, uh, played college golf for me at New Mexico. I've known him since he was seven years old. And that guy is the exact same way. He's, he's, he's worse than I am. I mean, he's, he's more competitive than I am. He goes to bed at night thinking about it. And he gets up in the morning thinking about it. He, he's got a great family. He's got a beautiful wife, but the, the burn in his brain is about golf and, and his heart is about golf. And, and uh, I'd say that I'm pretty much the same way. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you feel that way for long enough and, and your actions follow, you're going to create good things. So it, it's right. proof you're, you're proof for that. So I want to kind of transition into, I asked uh, a lot of the players I work with um, and some friends of kind of questions because they, I told them I was going to be talking to you, and they said that's awesome. So I got some questions. Um, if you don't mind going through those, no, no problem. So the first one is from a kid named BJ. Uh, he's a about to be a college player. What do you and don't like to see your players do on and off the course? I, I don't have any rigid rules. I, I, I golfers get it done differently. So. One of the first great players that I coached was Tim Heron, Lumpy on the PGA Tour, and he's on the Champions Tour now. That guy would get so mad on the golf course, so mad. And and initially, as a freshman, he would lose maybe four or five or six holes a day to that. Now, he was still shooting. He might shoot 68, 69, 70, 71, or 72, but I, but he would be gone really mentally for a few holes. And then his sophomore year, it was two or three holes. And then his junior year, when he became a first-team All-American, and he was New Mexico's first first-team All-American ever. Brad Bryant played there. There was a lot of good players that played there, Ray Cragen. But Tim was the, Tim was the first first-team All-American. His junior year, it was a half a hole or one hole. And then he played in the Walker Cup, and he got around – uh, several really, really good players. John Harris was, Tim's from Minnesota. John Harris is from Minnesota. John Harris won the U.S. Amateur. They, they partnered in the Walker Cup. And I noticed when he came back that one of the things that he did was he was really, he'd get mad, he'd still get angry. But he would really focus on his, his uh, yardage book. And I, and I asked him, I said, what are you doing? He goes, well, John was telling me that I need to get clarity for the shot that I'm about to hit, but I'm so angry that I need to either calm down, get that blood pressure down, breathe a little bit. And, and until I could really focus on what I'm going to do with that shot right now, that most important shot right now, the one that I've got in front of me, I can't go. And so 
I thought that was really interesting. He became a first team All American. They won on the PGA Tour in his rookie year. Uh, he won the Honda Classic at Heron Bay. Uh, uh, weird enough, and uh, and it was just so cool to watch him grow up. But what I noticed with him, and and when people would ask me what's what's tough about Tim, or what 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 is it that makes him good? And I said, well, what makes him good? is what makes him bad. And what makes him bad is what makes him good. Meaning this guy's not particularly incredibly athletic, although he's a pansy, great, great golfer. His golf swing is very similar to his dad's. Uh, people don't know that his grandfather played in the U.S. Open. His dad played in the U.S. Open. He played in the U.S. Open. I, I struck gold when I, when I uh, recruited Tim Heron my first year as a college golf coach. But the bottom line is, is that uh, he really taught me a lot because as a coach, if you take that fire away from Tim Heron, he doesn't win four times on the PGA Tour, he doesn't win $23 million, he's not on the Champions Tour today. Just no way, you can't do that. And so I always say that, you know, I was talking with Doug Gim yesterday and I said the same thing. I said, you know, if, if Doug Gim is a stubborn guy to deal with as a coach, I might not like that, but he's, you're, you're so, you have so much belief in what you do that it's difficult for you to allow me to tell you what I think. So I might get frustrated with that. Well, if I, if I try to knock that stubbornness out of Doug Gim, you know, he's not, the number one amateur in the world when he goes out onto the PGA tour. And, you know, he's had a, a couple of really nice years out there. And uh, I believe, I know he visions more, but so if, if you ask me that, I don't have anything that I would want to ever take away from a player. I just want to help refine that. And then if, for instance, I feel like that guy's getting so angry and he is compounding the negative walking off a green, then I might call that to his attention and just say, Hey man, you know, you don't get this excited when you, I mean, you don't, you're, you're getting so angry over the putt you just missed, but you don't get that excited when you make that same putt on the hole before. So if we're going to, if we're going to do it one way, we got to do it the other way too, because you're going to have to balance these things up. So what I like to see in players is balance. I really do. I like to see, I love seeing the fire, but I also want to see that guy be intelligent about what he's doing and recognize that I always think about certain different things, but the only thing you can control, you cannot control what's behind you. You cannot control what's in front of you, but you can control how you approach that next shot. The one that you have in front of you right now. And if you do that, if you put every ounce of energy that you have into that one shot that you have right now, well, the chances are you might just, you might just pull that off. But, you know, there's, there's so much that goes into that mentally and physically. Um, you got to believe it. You got to see it. You got to have done it. You know, and so for, I always tell guys that a three foot putt is a three foot putt. It doesn't matter if it's for the masters which we've had guys win. It doesn't matter if that's to get on the PGA tour. 
It doesn't matter if it's to win a national championship. What it is, is a three foot putt. So now if you start assigning values to that three foot putt more than what it is, well, then it becomes cumbersome to be able to make that three foot putt because your heart rate changes, your physiology changes and all those different things that you prefer not to deal with. They all become a burden. So I call it baggage and, and carrying around baggage. You're much better on a golf course if you're not carrying any baggage. But people do. I mean, how many times you go out on a golf course, you're not, you've not been playing well. You start out the first four holes and you play pretty well. And then you hit this one bad shot. And then all that negativity from the last three weeks comes pouring back just because of one shot. Well, you're really not playing one shot at a time at that point. You're allowing that shot to dictate how you feel as opposed to you digesting and like being able to throw that away. I, I think there was a guy named Larry Moretti on the, on the champions tour that didn't play on the PGA tour and had a lot of success on the champions tour. And, and he had the favorite phrase, forget about it. It was one word, forget about it. And that meant that, Everything behind you is really behind you. Doesn't make any difference anymore. So that's a long way of answering that question, but mm -hmm. that's a good answer. So I've got a, a another golf coach, another college golf coach, asking how do you generate a culture on the team? So we've talked about the culture that you that Texas has and that you have built, but as someone else who aspires for that culture, how would they? generate that culture well jackie burke says that in order to have it takes a hundred years to build a club you you can build a club and you can you know you can uh, operate it for 10 years but to, to, to actually have the club and the history that's that takes a hundred years so bottom line I listen to people say, well, they've got a great culture on that football team or they've got a great culture on that basketball team. Well, it starts at the top. There's no question about that. And then it is how you present yourself on a daily basis if you're the leader. And it is about your why. And then it's living your why. So in other words, if you came to me and you said, coach, I really want to do X, let's say you're playing for me and you, you, you sit in my office and you're saying, okay, well, what are your goals for this year? So you give me all of them. You know, you want to win three college golf tournaments and you want to finish in the top 10. You want to be a first team All-American and you want to win the NCAA championship. Okay, well then, you know, we start the year and you're working hard and you're doing all these things, but then you begin to get distracted. Maybe you acquire a girlfriend or you, you know, maybe you, you start to party a little bit, or uh, maybe you're not practicing quite as hard on certain aspects of your game. Well, then it's my job to call you out and say, Hey, let's go over your goals again. And you tell me how, what you're doing is going to allow you to accomplish those goals. So, I think the culture is, is you, you start with the end in mind and then you live how you get to that. And it's up to me to decide how we're going to live that or, and, 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 uh, 
the cool thing is, is if we're recruiting the right people, they kind of come in with a lot of that that already exists. Jordan Spieth told me, you know, I, I he said, well, who's on your team? And I, I we went through it and he knew all of them. And, and, you know, for the most part, he knew everybody. And he said, well, tell me about so-and-so and tell me about why would he be interested in that? Well, he wanted to be around people that that wanted to do the same thing that he did. He didn't mind that maybe a guy's not as good as him. I mean, who is? But what he wanted to be around is guys that wanted to win, that would be willing to work as hard as he does, that would be willing to believe what he does, that would be enjoyable to be around because they're semi-like-minded. Not that everybody's different, you know. On, the, on that national championship team that we went in 2012 when we won, we had Jordan Spieth, who's on the PGA Tour, who's won 12 times in three majors. Dylan Fratelli, who won three times in Europe and then won one time on the PGA Tour. Cody Gribble, who's won one time on the PGA Tour. And then Julio Vegas, that's now a golf instructor with Kevin Kirk, going to be in Miami. And then Tony Hockula, who's on the, on the uh, Latin American Tour. We got Ben Crenshaw in front of us right before we're going to leave for the national championship. And he had the guys in a circle around him. And he said, you know what I like about you guys? You're all really, really competitive. You're all obviously really, really good golfers. But there's not one of you alike. Nobody's trying to be like the other guy. And I've observed it from afar, he said. But he said, I really, really like that about you guys. Then he threw in, I got a good feeling about this, and we all got a good feeling about it too. So that was kind of a fun moment. Yeah, it's hard to hard to go lose after you hear that, right? <laughs> so um, on the subject, you've kind of talked about it. Um, what, like, we've, we've danced around it a little bit. What do you, how do you take someone like Jordan Spieth or Scotty Scheffler and turn turn them in, I in quotes, turn them into that good of a player. I mean, they start good, they come onto the team good, but how do you turn them into the, like, what do you do to turn them from a college player into a PGA Tour winner, major winner? Well, number one thing is I absolutely correspond with their dreams and their vision. And if you ask either one of them, I would say, if you said, was there anything that Texas did to get in your way? I think they would both say absolutely not. Now, in Scotty's case, who was here for four years, he was challenged because when I first started recruiting him, he was in seventh grade and he was five foot zero and not a hundred pounds. So that's when he was 13 years old. When he came to me as an 18 year old, he was borderline six foot four and 200 plus pounds. So that meant in a six year period, that guy doubled in size essentially and in weight for sure. And then he added significant uh, inches. And because of that, he dealt with injury in his lower back and his upper back actually too, uh, because of the growth, it was just so significant. 
the cool thing was there was a partnership there because we're we randy smith was his teacher and he kind of ran cover for him while he was kind of going now now scotty ended up being the ncaa freshman of the year but everybody was always comparing him to jordan speed why isn't scotty winning more why didn't he do this why didn't he do that you know Jordan won two U.S. juniors. Scotty only won one. You know, well, why? Well, everybody's different. And so in his case, too, he he chose to go into the business school. Well, that's a monumental challenge here at Texas because the school is so difficult. The McCombs School of Business is high, high, high value. And as a result, um, it's extremely difficult. Well, that's you know, they say that the greatest deterrent to success is a divided mind. Meaning, if you're really focused on only one thing, you're probably going to be pretty successful at it. He wanted the complete college experience. But that gets back to the balance of it. But, of course, he was being judged all the way and judged on Jordan Spieth's success. And so that made it uncomfortable for all of us but he had great mentorship with randy smith and and i was trying to do the same thing and everybody takes a different path so if you ask me what i what i try to do is i try extremely hard i I do this i keep a guy's vision intact uh and i try to enhance anywhere that I possibly can. And I try to build relationships with our guys, with others. Um, If they don't have an instructor, then we'll help them get an instructor. If we feel like that's the right thing to do. Some of them need a mentor. Some of them need a swing guy. Some of them need physical fitness, you know, whatever. But we're constantly trying to enhance and, and then I'll walk around with a guy on a golf course and I'll be like a caddy. And the reason I would do that is because, for instance, with a Bo Hostler, because that guy's wired. He's so competitive, but he still needed some enhancements here and there. He's a really, really fine player and a great person. But, you know, the bottom line is, is that everybody can get a little bit better all the time. And I always tell our guys, too, by the way, that I don't want you to get a lot better. People that rush the process, you you run the risk of losing it all. Um, It's better to get a little bit better all the time and let that compound. Um, And so if you're getting a little bit better all the time, that is, let's be patient and enjoy that. I read uh, Joe Gibbs' book. Joe Gibbs was the Washington Redskins um, head coach in one three. Um, Super Bowls and then went on to car racing, NASCAR, and he's won championships there. But he said the fastest way to getting rich is slowly. And I think essentially that's the same way as a player. But then everybody wants to rush the process. And another great question that Mike Holder used to ask his players at Oklahoma State was, when do you want to play your best golf? Well, they all saw themselves as playing college golf, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, you know, that, that sort of thing. And then getting out on the tour when they're 22 or 23. And so, well, yeah, I want to play my best golf when I, when I leave 
you know, Oklahoma State, right away, that's when I want to be playing my best golf. And he would correct him and say, no, that's not when you want to play your best golf. You want to be playing your best golf when you're 34, 35, 36, when you're married and you have kids and you have responsibilities and you have people depending on you because nobody depends on you right now. We do as a team. But when you leave here, nobody's dependent on you. But when you have a family, well, that's different. When you have kids, that's different. When you have bills to pay and mortgages to pay and you're investing in businesses and all those different things, that's when you want to be playing best golf. So maybe from 35 to 45. Yeah, I get it. So another question, um, what do you say to a player in the middle of an event if their game just isn't there? I try to simplify things. Uh, you know, I, I'll let's just say the reason they're not playing well is because they're just not hitting it very good. Well, we got to get it in the fairway. So let's find a golf club that's going to help us get it in the fairway. That's one. Two, it may simply be because their setup is incorrect. Maybe ball's too far forward or their alignment's not good and, and, Whatever. It could be a multitude of things. So I, I am a golf professional. I'm a professional golfer. I'm, I was an instructor. I gave 3,000 golf lessons before I ever became a golf coach. So I can look at that on the fly and at least assess where a guy might be having an issue. Maybe he's crossing the line at the top. Maybe he his transition is too fast. Maybe he's takeaways too fast going back maybe he's losing speed because he's backing out of the shot there there could be a multitude of reasons why maybe he's not hitting it as good and and i always say that myself and my assistants both of them were great players john paul a bear was an all-american three times here at texas and played professional golf for 10 years richie coglin who's my volunteer assistant played on the PGA tour off and on from 97 to 2005 was a first team all American at Clemson and three time all American there and athlete of the year at Clemson, which is saying a lot. And they're all really good at assessing golf swings and, or those two guys are really good at assessing golf swings. So we have kind of a, a treasure trove of information that we can kind of get back to it may be such that the guy is just, you know, what are you thinking about? What's, what are you worried about? You know, and we, we can walk down the fairway and have that moment and okay, well, all right, that's, that's a big deal right now, but here's what you need to do. You know, you need to, before you hit this next shot, let's take two or three cleansing breaths. Let's say two cleansing breaths, close your eyes and see the shot that you want to hit. Let's make a practice swing that produces that shot. And then let's go ahead and hit that shot, you know, and I'm not saying that we've got all the right answers, but at least we have a, a chest full of possibilities that we can go through with the player that might get them on track. In other words, another thing that happens from time to time, a guy might be a great player, let's say, and he's three or four or five over par. I've many times said to that player, look, I know you're angry about being three or four or five over, 
It's a tough day. But I know that you're not, you are not playing the kind of golf that you can play. And you are angry. But let me ask you this. If you were three or four under right now, let's just say you were three, four, five under, and you're about to shoot a really good round. How would you be walking down this fairway? What would you be thinking about that next shot? And they would tell me, and I would say, okay, for the last four or five holes, whatever we've got left, why don't we approach it that way? Forget about that. We can't do anything about what's behind you. But you can vision what you want from here on out. You can live how you would be playing when you're way more comfortable and excited about playing this game because you're four or five under par right now and you've got two par fives that you can close on. Let's do that. And then we'll move on from there. I mean, everybody has a bad day now and then. Sometimes more bad days than good days. But the bottom line is, is that I want to give my guy the best opportunity to be as highly competitive as he can. And if I if I come upon them, sometimes a player will even say, hey, coach, maybe better to go work with somebody else today because I just don't have. <laughs> There's no chance that I would leave that guy at that point. Not a chance. Because I've been in those shoes. I know how that feels. And, and it's just, no. We're going to learn something today. Sorry, you're not playing good, man. Yeah, let's let's find a way through it. Let's let's see what let's I like I like what you said earlier. Let, put get get the picture of what you want to happen in your mind and then let your body make that picture happen. Basically, I love that. Um, so last question. Um, what percent of golf is mental and what percent is physical? You know, when I, when I was a college golfer, people would always say that golf's like 90% mental. Uh, there's no question that it's funny that you asked that question because I was having a coffee with Jonathan Vegas a few days ago. And he said, you know, coach, all the guys out here hit it pretty good. And all the guys put it pretty good. But when you get out here, you got to be ready to play. And you better be in the moment. You, be, you better be ready to play. So I, if, if you go back to the fighter, for instance, in, in, a, in a ring, so when you step in that ring and the bell rings, and when you go out there to meet that other fighter, you better have your hands up, right? You better, because if you don't, you're done. Well, same thing in golf. It, you you uh, you have to be present to play good golf. And I think that means that at that point, the physical aspect of the game, the golf swing, the 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 engine, your body that 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 does you know the the actual ball striking, putting, chipping bunker shots, all those things, you would, you would need to have refined those as you're taking this 18 hole test. But once you're out there and you're, and you're in the moment, you're, you're essentially re regurgitating what you know. And 
we're phys- we're 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 human. So the gospel wing doesn't always feel like perfect, right? Jordan Spieth told me that in a 72 hole event, it's invariable, invariable that he or inevitable, it's inevitable that one of those days he's not going to have his best ball striking day. He's just not going to hit it as good as he did. And this is when he wins a golf tournament. So what are you going to do that day? Well, he happens to have one of the greatest short games maybe that there's ever been. He's a great putter. He's a great chipper. He's a great bunker player. So now all of a sudden you're dipping into other things that you're going to need that day because you recognize as a player, I just, I'm not, I'm just not hitting it as good. And so that's where I think you've got, you got your A game, you got your A plus game. That's when the sun and the moon and the stars come together. You're putting it good. You're chipping it good. Your bunker shots are good. Your wedges are good. Your thinking is good. Your, your, your ball striking is fantastic. You're driving it great. That's a plus game. And that is the sun and the moon and the stars coming together. And that might happen once or twice a year. You might have your A game. That's really close to A plus game. Then you got your B plus game, your B game, your B minus game, your C plus game, your C game, and your C minus game. Question is, and the tail of, or the the measure of the, the great player is, can you win out there with your C game? The reason that would be is that means now all of a sudden, maybe you're choking down on the driver because you just can't hit it as far that day as you'd like to, but you know you need to get it in the fairway. So you got you got this ability to tee the ball down low and you get all of those drives in the fairway, but you're giving up 30 yards, but you're in the fairway. And all of a sudden you maybe not drop ball striking it good enough, but you chip in once that day and you hit a make, maybe make a bunker shot that day. And you might make two 30 footers, but your wedges are pretty sharp. So you're, you know, you're in position. And even if you have to chip out, you're not so worried about that because you, you, you chipped it where you've got a wedge and you can hit it three feet from 125 yards. So the guys that you see out there, I always say that if you go out on the PGA tour and you look on the driving range, everybody out there has got something special. One guy might be physically gifted. Another guy might be mentally gifted. So in a PGA tour winner might have one, two or three things that are special about them. For whatever reason, maybe they're a good ball striker, uh, they're a really good putter, and they've got great rhythm. Uh, A major champion, on the other hand, has four, five, or six things that are really special about them. And then you got Tiger and you got Jack, you know, and uh, they might have seven, eight, nine, or ten things that are special about them. And but what I'm, where I'm going with that is that you need to refine yourself so that when you're out there taking that test, that you can shift gears when you need to. You, 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 you need to be able to recognize that it's, it's not happening today. So I can do one of two things. I can get really angry and act out and post an 81, or I can shift gears to B game. Now that's not there either. I shift gears to my C game and I find a way to post a 71 or a 72. And then 
Now, 65, 67, 72, 68, champion. Didn't hit it good on that third day, you know. And there's a lot of things that go on out there on the golf course that that can, or or or, or during a PGA Tour event that people don't even recognize. You know that, like day three after the cut's been made, those hole locations get a lot harder. They're really going to test you now, and sometimes it, it'll identify that guy that maybe not quite there. But the guy that has all the accoutrements, all the things that will allow him to move on and still be successful, that's the guy that's going to win. Yeah. Mental is important when everyone else is pretty solid physical. Yeah. I would say the mental aspect of the game is anywhere between 90 and 99%. Oh, wow. But that's taking in, in, into consideration that I'm dealing with somebody that physically has done the, done the time, done the reps, and able to produce golf shots. Hmm. It's obviously not as big if you're still learning how to play and and you're still evolving with that golf swing. Right. Yeah, it, it gets more important the better you get physically is is what I'm learning, what I'm figuring out. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, whether it was Ben Hogan or Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods, they were the best. I mean, they're mentally, they were the best. They visioned things. They saw things. And why that is, I don't know. I would, it's funny because I, I've been around two guys, uh, Tom Kite and, and Jordan, that I would say are delusionally confident, meaning that what they believe is well beyond what I can even conceive. Why that is? In Jordan's case, I know his parents, both really good collegiate athletes. Dad played baseball, mom played basketball. Um, but why he evolved into this guy that believed that he could win a major championship, that he could win PGA Tour events, I don't really have the answer to that. I don't know. I just know that he believes it and he visions it and then he lives it. He does the time. He he does his fitness. He he does his reps. He he doesn't cut corners. He does what he needs to do to be that guy. Jack Nicholas was the same way. Even when he had a family, I mean, that guy, you know, the people don't realize this. When he was building golf courses, even at the prime of his career, two things he needed to have if he was going to build a golf course for you. He wanted the builder to incorporate into his build and into Jack's contract a house. So that he could own that house and then sell that house a couple of years later. It was a way to make a little bit more money. But he also had to have an airstrip close by, maybe even on the property, because he wanted to be able to get in and get out of there so he could have quality time with his family. Because he already knew that he was going to take time away from the family to be the golfer that he has to be or can be or will be and is. But the only way to do that was to be mobile and to be, he can't be spending time in an airport. He's got to be on his own plane. And so those guys, they dream big. And, and if you ask me to sum up all of this, what we just talked about, I would say you got to dream big and you got to be able to allow those dreams to happen even when you're having hard times. Mm. And that is not easy. No. 
Okay. I, we could talk forever. I could talk to you forever. You've, you're, like you said, you're a treasured trove of awesome info, but uh, I really do appreciate you doing this, Coach Fields. This has been a, it's been a real pleasure. You're welcome. God bless you and your listeners. I appreciate everything. I love this game and I, and I, and I feel blessed to be a part of it, but I also feel like, um, that the things that our guys are going to do and, and are going to continue to do are just so special that I'm lucky to be around it. My wife is too. We, we love it. That's great. All right, coach. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. Welcome horns. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to this interview with Coach Fields. I hope you learned something from that conversation. There's a reason he's been able to coach such good players into being as successful as they've been. So what he says holds a ton of value to me. If you like this episode, you should share it with someone you know that needs to hear it. Or you could go leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Both of those help more people discover the show. And I may be a little bit biased, but I happen to think that it's worth discovering. If you have questions or ideas for topics for the show, send an email to mentalgolfshow at gmail.com. If you want to take the next step and actually work with a coach on your mental game, I'm a mental coach, and I'd love to work with you. Send an email to foundationsgolf at gmail.com. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Mental Golf Show. I'm Josh Nichols, and I'll see you guys next time.